W233AH Monticello. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Friday, Dan Hoost is here from Sullivan County Government to give us an update on what's going on in Monticello. Plus, a podcast from our partnership with New York Public News Network. Far-right extremism is thriving in small rural communities across the country, gaining support of mainstream voters and local law enforcement. In the podcast, we'll talk to Jackie Bray, the commissioner of New York's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, about how prevalent it is in the state. Plus, winter in Parksville, Pillars of Parksville, is welcoming folks to enjoy winter in the region tomorrow. It's a new event with activities and demonstrations. We'll get a preview. Plus, more on the weather. First, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. There are only a few days left before New Hampshire's primary election. One takeaway from this week's Iowa caucuses is that white evangelical Christians show no signs of backing away from Donald Trump. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the former president gained support in Iowa compared to 2016. In a contest with several other Republican options, more than half of white evangelicals chose former President Trump. Even with recent victories like the overturning of the abortion rights decision Roe v. Wade, many still see themselves as underdogs in a culture war, says University of Oklahoma sociologist Samuel Perry. And they believe that Trump is the guy who has in the past and and continues to promise to fight for them. For now, all eyes are on next week's primary in New Hampshire, a state with fewer evangelicals and more moderate voters who may be somewhat more open to another candidate. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Manchester, New Hampshire. Pakistan's top military and civilian officials will conduct a security review today amid heightened tensions with Iran. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports both countries have signaled a desire to de-escalate after each launched attacks on the other's soil. After an Iranian attack targeted Jaysh al-Adil militants in southwest Pakistan, Islamabad responded with strikes that Iran says left nine people dead, including children. Iran's foreign ministry issued a statement saying its territorial integrity is one of Iran's red lines and it expects its, quote, friendly and brotherly neighbor Pakistan to adhere strongly to its commitment to preventing the establishment of bases and groups of armed terrorists on Pakistani soil. Officials from both countries say they're looking for ways to de-escalate the situation. The exchange of attacks are seen as the most prominent cross-border violence in recent years and have raised fears of further destabilizing the region. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. An Arctic blast is freezing the central U.S. Wind chill advisories are posted from Montana to Florida. In northern Montana this morning, the temperature is more than 20 degrees below zero. Stocks opened higher this morning as the National Association of Realtors reported a drop in home sales last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 50 points in early trading. Sales of existing homes dipped by 1% in December, capping off the slowest year for home sales in almost three decades. For all of 2023, sales were down nearly 19% as rising mortgage rates put homes out of reach for many would-be buyers. They also kept a lot of would-be sellers locked into their current homes with cheaper mortgages. With a shortage of homes on the market, the average sales price in December rose 4.4% from a year ago to more than $382,000. There may be some modest relief in store for the beaten-down housing market. Mortgage rates have dipped to their lowest level in nearly eight months, and mortgage giant Fannie Mae projects they'll fall below 6% by the end of this year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. The chair of the House Armed Services Committee has asked Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to testify. This is over Austin's failure to disclose his recent hospitalization in a timely manner to President Biden. Austin was hospitalized for complications for surgery for prostate cancer. He also did not initially disclose his surgery or cancer diagnosis. Paris's 2024 Olympics are being called the Suburb Olympics. Most of the events will be spread across three of Paris's northern suburbs. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports 
The games represent a wave of hope for the cut-off, disadvantaged areas. The suburbs of Paris are often known for their housing projects, isolation, and high unemployment. But thanks to the games, they'll be getting new transport connections. The Olympic Games was a game changer. That's Karim Boumran, the mayor of Saint-Ouen, one of the northern Paris suburb towns that will also house the Olympic Village for athletes. Boumran says the infrastructure projects will boost business and living standards and help narrow the gap between Paris and its suburbs. Olympic Games give the opportunity to north of Paris to have the same equality like the Paris downtown, the center. He also says the games are an accelerator for the existing project to open 68 new metro stops in the Paris suburbs. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. Japan hopes to set a small lander on the moon later this hour. The probe has been in orbit around the moon since Christmas Day. The mission launched last September from Japan. On Wall Street, the Dow is now up 62 points. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is NPR. Welcome back to Radio Chat Skill. I'm Tim Bruno. It's Friday, and Dan Hoost is here. He's the communications director for Sullivan County Government, joins us every Friday with an update from the Government Center in Monticello, even on a snowy Friday. Yes, the roads are a little dicey out there today. Yeah, they're Uh, getting a little not great. Yeah. To my knowledge, the weather service didn't put us under a winter weather advisory, did they? No, they didn't. didn't It's it's really uh, slippery. It is a little slippery, and um, uh, most all of the schools in the area are closed. Yep. <laughs> Some of the libraries are still open. Thank goodness for the librarians. Uh, and uh, the roads, yeah, it looks like in, in terms of uh, what this looks like, uh, snow continuing through about 11 or 12, and then tapering off a bit, but then resuming again this afternoon from about 2 to 5. We're looking from 1 to 3 inches. And, uh, yeah, it's a light snow. It's similar to what happened uh, earlier uh, in the week where it yep. – it, comes down light it's a little powdery but then it makes it uh, still kind of slick out there with the low temperatures as well so yeah. be careful if you're out there driving yeah stay home if you don't have to i can speak to personal experience on that our crews are working and the county government offices are open but if you don't have to go out today probably better if you don't yeah so. all right let's talk about some of the things that are going on in the legislature um the folks are meeting again uh, as they do on every thursday yesterday with some committee meetings uh what happened yesterday well, uh, it was another one of those, what I call legislature 101, uh-huh. uh, sessions. Or maybe since last week was 101, this would be legislature 102. But, <laughs> uh, if you're seeking to better understand how county government works and are willing to jump into some of the details, uh, these meetings are great to watch. We have them available to watch on the website. They're all archived. And because we have a majority of new legislators, our commissioners and department heads and directors have been telling them what they do, Mm -hmm. what their departments, their divisions, their offices do for the people of Sullivan County, which is vast. And of course, these legislators don't have uh, a full understanding of that. This is how they get that. And frankly, I think they'd agree with me. It's a great way for the public to get a fuller understanding as well. And listen. I don't know if there's anybody that is an expert on all things county government. Well, I guess I'm supposed to be, right? But no, but I can't do anybody else's job or anything like that. So there are definitely things people do that you know you either won't know about or don't care about. But for a great overall view of what county government does, I strongly encourage folks to watch this because it's been educational for me, and I work daily in county government. And if, if you're willing to, to listen or listen, this is, uh, these are videos you could skip around to different sections of them. You could learn a lot and maybe something that actually spurs you to talk to your legislator or show up at a meeting or take some action in your community about something. This is what I'm all about. This is what this new legislature is all about is community engagement, having the public be informed, right. empowered, and then help the county take action on things. It's not I, – I hate it when people just look at government and say, you fix this. No, you're part of the community. It's part of your responsibility too. But that requires us to be informed as to how things work, how things get done. 
There was somebody there yesterday who had not been to any more than maybe one or two legislator meetings, but she's now feeling empowered. She started to talk to her legislators. She spoke up during public comment. A community member. Yes, just somebody who has not been there um, uh, other than I think last week and is finding this to be inspiring, informing, and empowering. And, and that's what I want to encourage more and more people because as I've said so many times before, an informed ele- electorate is a powerful electorate. And you need to know what your legislators are doing and why. And these meetings are open to the public and yes. happen every week or published on the website. Uh, have you been seeing a good attendance from folks in the community or, or not yet? It's, it's, it's the usual crew. Mm-hmm. So uh, now we have, I, I think a pretty good audience uh, online. Uh, we've had as many as a thousand people watching a particular meeting online, which I think is pretty good. We certainly couldn't fit all of them in the hearing room. Uh, I would say probably it's more like one to 200 folks who are watching. And then some of that is just our own county staff that are needing to stay up to date, but can't come to the meeting directly. So we want to get people more engaged. I'm fine if it's not in person as long as they're watching. But then also after that, if something bothers you or something really makes you feel good, tell your legislator about it. Talk to them. I've put all of their numbers and email addresses, all the updated ones on the website. It's on the county legislature page. They have direct phone numbers. You do not have to go through any kind of administrative assistant or clerk to get to them. They also have direct emails. These are not filtered by anybody. Uh, They go straight to them. So you have a way of connecting with the folks who represent you in a fashion that uh, probably is harder to duplicate the higher up in government levels you go at the state and federal level. These folks are right. really responsive. So, so let's talk about some of the, uh, as we were saying, Legislative 101 uh, stuff that happened yesterday. What were some of the, the committees, uh, what were they learning? Uh, well, one of the, the key things that was talked about was uh, the Human Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the This legislature is, I think, keenly interested in getting that back into a real active role. Our Human Resources Division handles it right now, but there's uh, no actual Human Rights Commission executive director. And the commission, which is like a board of commissioners for the Human Rights Commission, I don't think they've met in a long time, at least not since the uh, former executive director departed. So the question now is, though, since the position is part-time and the former director said it really is more of a full-time position, what is this legislature going to do about that? Should they do anything about it? They have a number of different options. The easiest one, of course, is just to bounce all concerns and requests up to the state division of or uh, state human rights commission which has actual authority or teeth as i as i would say uh our human resources division right now basically can investigate but they really can't do anything further about that except to refer it to the state uh so there's also that's the second option to keep doing it the way we're currently doing it the third option is to get a part-time executive director, sort of uh, go back to what we were doing about a year or two ago, and uh, uh, see if we could get somebody who'd be willing to do a lot of work for part-time pay. And then the fourth uh, option, which seems to me to be what this legislature may be leading towards, is to get a full-time human rights executive director who will probably work with a commission, a board of, of community members, uh, right now, the way it's set up is though the executive director does not answer to the commission, the commission serves under the executive director, um, and thus have somebody who would be a local conduit, whether or not they would actually have enforcement powers like the state does, I'm not exactly sure. That would be up to the legislature and the county attorney's office to see what powers they could vest them with. But they at least would have the powers of investigation, and of course, the the popularity of that is not just that there's work to be done, but that it would be a local face for local people who would otherwise maybe feel intimidated about having to call up to the state or talk to somebody that they may not be familiar with. The past human rights executive directors for Sullivan County have, uh, to a person, developed relationships 
with the people that they serve. There's a trust, a bond that happens there. So uh, I'm guessing that's where they're headed uh, is towards a a human rights executive director, either part-time or full-time. But they have a number of options to consider. Just remind folks what the Human Rights Commission in the county is is tasked with or what their their goals are. It would investigate any allegations that people's uh, human rights, the rights to uh, shelter, to... Um, freedom of uh, assembly, for example, uh, the right to um, uh, food or government services, uh, that those things, they would investigate any allegations of them being infringed upon. The biggest issue has been in the past housing, housing issues. People, the big issue. People feeling like they aren't being treated fairly as tenants, uh, although occasionally we've had landlords uh, come to. Uh, it's, uh, but usually the power dynamic is not in favor of, of the tenant. So, uh, that has been primarily the focus I'm told of, of past human rights executive directors. And certainly the housing issue continues to be a major one here in Sullivan County. So, um, it seems like it is a pretty neat, a big need in the, the area to have someone sort of, uh, Heading this up, even if it is part time, this legislature is 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 hasn't done anything yet, but it seems as if wanting to do more to get that going again. Right. You know, remember, this is just the second like set second of week, meetings yeah. that this legislature has had. The full board uh, meeting will be next Thursday at a 10 a.m., not 11, 10 a.m. They'll be preceded by an executive committee meeting at 9 a.m. next Thursday. And I think probably at that they'll talk a bit more about this, but basically they'll just pass the stuff that already was talked about in committee. I, I think it's in February where they really start being able to dig into these pressing issues because they had to get their feet underneath them. And I've said this before, it probably will take a full year before they feel like they've got a good handle on everything. But there are things that can't wait that long. Mm-hmm. And I think they feel that the Human Rights Commission question needs to be settled before that. So I wouldn't be surprised February, March by the latest, that they would take up this question and make some sort of resolution thereof. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Dan Hoost, who is the communications director for Sullivan County Government. He joins us every Friday with an update from Monticello. Uh, other committee things that happened yesterday in the legislature that you want to highlight? I think I'll just briefly bring this up. There was uh, talk about the care center, uh, the staffing uh, um just being always, well, in any healthcare setting, staffing is always going to be uh, uh, an issue. And uh, we've found success in providing incentives for uh, people to, to work additional shifts. But, of course, the, that's not the ideal. The ideal is to have uh, people who are um, uh, working just one shift. We have enough people to cover all all their, their own shifts. So, listen, this is not unique to the care center, and I'm not calling it out as if there's something wrong there. It just was a concern for uh, legislators. But then that led to the question of, well, what are we doing about the care center? Uh, there is still some uncertainty about that uh, because, of course, there's the, the option of um, continuing with uh, the consultant right now that we have, Infinite Care. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also the option of uh, bringing it back under uh, full county operational control. There is, of course, an option that they might Go with another consultant to uh, to go for the operational certificate. Um, that all remains to be seen. Some people have asked me about that. It got brought up in legislature yesterday. And all I could tell people is, wait, this legislature has uh, intentions as to exactly what they are. I'm not sure that they fully talked about that amongst all nine of themselves. And that will be discussed uh, in public as well so that people have a chance to weigh in on that. So, um as much as I can ask of people to be patient on this, to find out what's going to happen next, because there are strong feelings on either side. Mm-hmm. There are folks who feel uh, that the county should not be in the business of this and that it is a, an enormous financial drain on the county. There are other folks who say we shouldn't be looking at it in those terms, uh, that it is a service that we are morally obligated, not legally, but morally obligated to provide to uh, the people of this county. There are other folks who feel that a hybrid should be explored again, but perhaps with a different consultant. Um, uh, so it really is a matter for this legislature to figure out. I think they will be at some point 
uh, meeting with uh, the leadership of the care center. That that didn't happen yesterday, which I think precipitated the conversation about it. But there will be a meeting about that so that they can fully understand how they want to move forward with the county uh, control and operation of the care center. So, right. One other thing to touch on, too, is that grand jury report uh, about Child Protective Services. Yesterday, uh, John Little, the County Commissioner of Health and Human Services, said uh, that the county wants to hire another pair of eyes on that management. Can you talk a little bit mm-hmm. about that? Yep. This is, I think, what I talked about uh, last week uh, uh, when I was with you a little bit, that there was a RFP, a request for proposals that had been issued after the state report about the, the child's death and liberty uh, came out in I think it was September or thereabout. And we had several uh, interested firms apply. I think there's one that is going to be presented as early as next week to legislators uh, to vote upon. And uh, this firm will be tasked with taking a deep dive, deep look into social services, our former Department of Family Services, now called Department of Social Services, and our Child Protective Services to see what it is that we're doing right, what it is that maybe could be improved upon, what it is that we shouldn't be doing at all, and how we could improve the whole system and process of it. Of course, there's a grand jury report that came out uh, from the district attorney's office. He had a press conference about it, highlighting some specific recommendations. However, the county has always wanted, and this was before even there was an awareness of a grand jury being convened, to have a firm with experience in this, a, a professional firm, do a professional con- consultancy with actual professional recommendations that align with what the state guidelines are so that we can move forward from there. And I can say John Little and his team have said they're very open mm-hmm. to making changes and uh, figuring out how to prevent what happened earlier this year from happening before. And and. And for me, it's not about assigning blame. I know for some people it is, well, who was at fault? What happened? It's about what do we do to prevent this from happening again? We can't go back in time, unfortunately, with that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't hold people accountable. Uh, you know, we hold people as accountable as the law allows. What I'm saying is, though, that we need to be looking forward, and that's what our Department of Health and Human Services, which social services and CPS are under, is doing, is looking forward and how can we best or better serve the children and the families of Sullivan County? So this this is not something being done just to somehow put a salve on public opinion about this. Mm-hmm. This is real work that is going to result in real recommendations that will be expected to be acted upon. And yesterday the legislature didn't take any action on the proposed consultant, but we'll come no, up I, again next week. I believe week. next week is when it's uh, going to come up in a resolution. Uh, talking about children, public health has a dedicated staff person to help uh, assist families uh, who have children with special health care needs. Yes, this was interesting. This this was not something actually that I knew a lot about until our public health outreach team uh, put a Facebook post on our public health Facebook page about this, that this is a program. We have a specific program manager um, who handles and funding for this who handles children and youth with special needs. I believe that's the the name of the program. And it's to assist families that actually um, uh, may not be able to afford or have access to needs for children who have uh, physical and mental disabilities that are very challenging for them. This is really to to make sure that we're getting everybody the help they need. There are folks who are thankfully in a better financial position that may be able to send their children to special private schools or academies that could help them with a very difficult and challenging physical and mental uh, ability issues. Um, but there are plenty of people, especially here in Sullivan County, who cannot afford that kind of, of um, treatment and care. But we can't just leave them out in the cold. And school districts, as much of wonderful work as they do, aren't always fully equipped to handle this kind of thing. So we have folks in our public health team. It's run by Rita Burns is her name. She's the program manager for it, uh, who are there to assist. We don't necessarily provide any services ourselves other than the assistance part of it, but we can get you in touch with people who do. 
And we, of course, can back that up with the services that we do already offer at Public Health. You know, we offer everything from immunizations to uh, um, all sorts of connections within the community for child care. Uh, so uh, I encourage people, if they have a family member uh, or they know of, of uh, a friend who's a parent to a child with special health care needs, give us a call. And I'm not going to list out all of what those needs are. It's better that you call. If you think that you know of a child that might be eligible for this, call. Because even if they're not necessarily eligible for that, we might find something else that they're eligible for. The number to call is 845-292-0100. That's 845-292-0100. You can just push zero, ask for Rita Burns or the Children and Youth with Special Needs program, and they will connect you. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, more with Dan Hoost, uh, Communications Director from Sullivan County Government. This is Radio Chatskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org. From the Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan a publicly supported philanthropic institution, cfosny.org, and from listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. Hey, it's Cassie from Rare Pair Radio, playing you the fruit of all things sweet, Fridays, 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., mostly female artists from rock, funk, punk, pop, and more. All rare, only on WJFF Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno, and here with Dan Hoost, Communications Director for Sullivan County Government. Uh, we were, of course, talking about weather, uh, the, looking at one to three inches of snow by the time it wraps up later this evening. And a reminder to folks that the warming centers in the area are open and available uh, and through April even. But uh, to, always good during these times uh, when you see the snow on the ground to remind folks that these are open. Yeah, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. every night, seven nights a week, 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. at the Methodist United Methodist Church on North Main Street in Liberty. And at the Episcopal Church, St. John's Episcopal on St. John Street in Monticello. Um, for those who might not be familiar exactly where the, the churches are, I refer to them thusly. Basically sort of kitty corner across from the village of Liberty Hall on the same side of the road as the town of Liberty Hall, just up the street a little bit from there. They could cross from the food market. Uh, it's, it's all in the library. It's all in that area. People at Liberty are saying, no, it's right here. I, I know, I know. Uh, St. John Street is the street that heads south. Uh, basically, if you were sitting at the light on Broadway and the uh, courthouse was either off to your left or your right, St. John Street's the other street that heads away from the courthouse there. And that would be right across the street from the old Monticello Middle School, which I think is the St. John Street Bosey's Education Center now. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have great volunteers there. And some people have said to me, well, wait a minute. What do you throw them out on the street at 8 a.m.? We don't throw anyone out on the street at 8 a.m. We make sure that if they're in any kind of uh, challenging situation, that they have another place to go to. Um, listen, there are people who come to our lobby in the government center and spend a good chunk of the day there staying warm because they have no other place to go. We're happy to have them there. We're happy to help people further than that because we can find them shelter. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be the most ideal, but it'll be better necessarily than um, sleeping under uh, a cardboard box out in the cold. Another a service uh, we want to remind folks that is uh, available to folks who are in a challenging situation, uh, uh, the Narcan vending machines at community services, uh, offices, uh, probation offices throughout the county. Yeah, well, we only have two. Uh, so there's one. Uh, in oh, the vending machine. Anna, Sorry, yeah. Yeah, the vending machine. These are not in the locks boxes. Right, right. That This is different from – JFF has the locks boxes. Those are for emergency use. These are actually vending machines where you could 
take from them, whether it's an emergency or not. There's no alarm that goes off or anything. It's it's like a typical vending machine. It just doesn't cost anything. You have to enter a code. It's listed right there on the vending machine, how to go ahead and access it. And I've done it myself. You just sort of push the buttons and you watch the thing cycle and it drops down like a bag of pretzels. But it's uh, instead actually Narcan, which can bring somebody back from the brink of death who is overdosing on uh, especially fentanyl and some of the other opioids that are uh, affecting our community right now. So you could find that near our probation office in, in the Government Center Annex in Monticello. You can also find that in our Department of Community Services or uh, uh, yes, Department of Community Services building, which is next to the Travis building there on our Liberty campus. And again, this is free. So if you feel you want to take one, no one's going to be catching your camera and saying, why did you take that? Uh, did you have an immediate need for that? This is not like the Nalox boxes, which are for that moment of emergency. This is for you to take and be able to have ready in case of an emergency. Right. Um, it's award season. Uh, you know, uh, it seems as if there was a, a, an award for the treasurer's office. Was it, was it an Emmy, a critic's choice? <laughs> it's, it's her version of it. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's from the government finance officers association. This is the premier or organization for financial officers of municipalities throughout the country, not just counties, could be states, uh, villages, boroughs, uh, all sorts of different government offices. So this means a lot to our treasurer's office, which I forget what year this is. I think this might be the eighth or ninth year that our treasurer's office has won this award, but it is the highest award they give out. It's excellence in financial reporting. And not only should they be proud of it, we should all be proud of it because that means that what they're creating, this annual comprehensive financial report is what it's called, which they're required by law to create, is truly comprehensive, also easy to understand, and gives people uh, something upon which to base actions and thoughts about the finances of Sullivan County government. This is a key duty of the treasurer's office. So in one way, yeah, this is what they should be doing. But in another, it's really great that they pull out all the stops to make sure this not only meets the state and federal rules that we have to follow, but also meets the needs of the people, including lay people like me, who might have to read it. And you can find it on the treasurer's page on the county website. You can find our annual financial reports going back, I forget how many years, at least 20 years. Um, and the past few ones have all been award-winning. Nancy Buck, our treasurer, was very proud to tell legislators yesterday, hey, we did it again. And I'll be putting out a press release about that later today, lauding them for it. Uh, SullivanNY.us is the county website where you can find that and uh, other uh, information, uh, including information about our favorite topic, the Food Scrap Recycling Program. Not quite award-worthy yet. We haven't met the goal, but it seems like there might be some momentum. <laughs> we are. We're up to 287 as of yesterday from what uh, Cassie Thelbert, our recycling coordinator, was telling me. Uh, she seems quite confident, actually, okay, that we good. are going to not only ex uh, pass the 300 mark soon, but we are going to hit that 400 mark. She came to the legislature meetings yesterday. It was a public works committee meeting, and she introduced herself to the legislators, talked a little bit about the food scrap recycling pilot program. One of the legislators, I even think, said, oh, what's that? And oh. I was like, oh, come over here. <laughs> no, I was so glad that they asked because that gave her all the excuse she needed to explain to that audience what the food scrap recycling program is about. So um, please, if you want to sign up, please give a call to Cassie. She would love to hear from you. 807-0291. So instead of putting those food scraps into the landfill, which generates the methane, you can recycle yep. it and... We'll compost it, and this is a trial program will hopefully then lead to a permanent program here in Sullivan County. The odds are looking pretty good for that. Good. And before we go, uh, happy birthday in order. Yes. A really a, good one. A resident of our care center named Marie Stenson. She celebrated this week, I think it was Wednesday, uh, her 105th birthday. Now, Amazing. <laughs> I, I think basically uh, anytime you get up past 90 in this day and age, uh, the, the birthday should be celebrated just as uh, loudly as they were when you were like five or six or seven years old. But to get to 105, I mean, think about all the things that she's seen in her life. And 
it was, I think, an honor and a privilege for our care center crew to be able to celebrate that with her yesterday. She was all smiles. Um, she, I think, had a great time. We made a big, well, in my family, we called it, you make a big stink about it. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're, we just want to wish her from all of Sullivan County a happy birthday. We're so glad you were able to celebrate it with us. Happy birthday, Marie. Dan Hoost is the Communications Director for Sullivan County Government. He joins us every Friday. Again, you can find more information about uh, Sullivan County Government at SullivanNY.us. Dan, thanks so much. Uh, Safe travels on the roads. Thank you. You too. We'll take a break. And when we come back, If All Else Fails, it's a podcast through our partnership with the New York Public News Network. New York State is seeing an incredible rise in hate-filled violence and intimidation The podcast producers will talk to Jackie Bray, the commissioner of New York's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. That's next. Radio Chatskill. I am Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, you may have noticed that universities are having some trouble these days. I do think there needs to be a reckoning. But this isn't the kind of trouble you may be thinking. That paper has three experiments, and at least two different people appear to have committed fraud for at least two different studies. Why is there so much fraud in academia? It's next time on Freakonomics Radio, Tuesday at 1 p.m. on Radio Catskill. Hey, everybody, this is Jeff Loeffler of The Deep End, and you can join me each and every Friday night from 10 to midnight as I explore the deep end of the catalogs of bands maybe you know, maybe you don't know. You'll hear some Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead, Government Mule, right alongside bands like the Electric Peanut Butter Conspiracy, Kula Shaker, and Supergrass. That's The Deep End each and every Friday night from 10 to midnight right here on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Far-right extremism is thriving in small rural communities across the country and gaining support of mainstream voters and local law enforcement in some cases. Through our partnership with the New York Public News Network, North Country Public Radio reporters Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch are investigating extremist groups and militia movements that are active in New York State and why they're drawing support and what kinds of threats they pose at a pivotal moment for democracy in the United States. New York is seeing a rise in hate-filled violence and, and intimidation. And that's according to Jackie Bray, the commissioner of New York's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. In this interview from the podcast, If All Else Fails, Bray drives into how prevalent far-right extremism is in the state, which groups are active and recruiting, and what role New Yorkers have in preventing the spread of violent extremism. We look at extremist online extremist activity every month. And New York State, uh, this is not where you want to be in the top, but New York State ranks in the top five across the country of online extremist activity almost every month. In 2020, I believe it's the year that we came in only second to California in terms of domestic extremist incidents. And so we have significant domestic extremist activity across the state. We are looking at online patterns and online trends every single month. For example, this activity often really mirrors what's going on in the press. We've seen, we saw like a 170% spike in extremist activity uh, targeting LGBTQ New Yorkers after the Tennessee shooting. Uh, we've seen an, a significant increase in extremist activity targeting or online activity targeting black New Yorkers after certain news events. We, we often see a spike targeting law enforcement or targeting elected officials, depending on what's going on in the press. Over the summer, the Proud Boys marched in the streets around Saratoga Springs, New York. In Boston Spa, there was a business owner identifying as queer who said she was the main target of a Proud Boys march. How does something like that fit in with the work you're doing on domestic terrorism prevention? So let me say that, that right, that we're seeing this incredible rise in hate-filled violence and hate-filled vandalism and hate-filled intimidation. And what we think we have to do to stop that is, one, we have to absolutely prosecute to the fullest extent criminal acts, right? If people are doing things criminally, we have to make sure that we bring the full weight of New York's justice system down. But number two, so much of this are things that end up being largely protected by the First Amendment. You know, it is legal to march in a town. 
And as much as I am repulsed by people's hate and repulsed by white supremacy and repulsed by challenges, aggressive challenges to the rule of law, as long as that's not violent, that is often legal. And what our job is, is to make sure we have the tools and the tactics in place to interrupt before violence happens. And and threat assessment and management teams work to help us do that even before something has been triggered where law enforcement can be the right response. Commissioner, many people in law enforcement are politically conservative and might feel some level of sympathy for a group like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, which actively recruits veterans and police. How concerned are you about extremism within law enforcement? Very. Full stop. We know that domestic extremists and organizations, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Boogaloo Boys, uh, recruit in formal military and in active law enforcement, active retired law enforcement. And it is incredibly concerning to me the fact that we not only see that across the nation, but we certainly have instances of that here in New York State. I think that it is incumbent upon our law enforcement agencies to recognize how deleterious, how undermining to trust between law enforcement and the community, allowing people who are members of those organizations within our ranks is and uh, has been, is, will be. And I think New Yorkers should be aware that that is a tactic of these groups to recruit in law enforcement and former military, and that we're going to have to take some action to protect our law enforcement from that. We've interviewed folks about the far-right movement and violent extremism here in the North Country. And a response we hear sometimes is that the Black Lives Matter movement is more violent and more disruptive, and that there's too much focus on the far-right, and that that's unfair. What would you say to that? That's factually not true. The FBI and the Department of Homeland Security for the two previous administrations, so both in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration, have been consistent that white supremacist violent extremism is the greatest terrorist threat to the United States, and that holds for New York, too. And while there has been an undermining of the sort of broad acceptance of institutional information, the truth is that when we look at the facts, we see far more violent extremism and violent extremism that leads to death from racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists in the white supremacist and the neo-Nazi groups. Those are just facts. We don't see anywhere near that from groups like Black Lives Matter. It's not in the same category of groups. That doesn't mean that we don't look across the political spectrum for extremist activity, but we have to be clear-eyed and honest about where most of that violence is coming from. And right now, most of that violence is coming from white supremacist, anti-government, anti-Semitic, right-wing extremists. I would not be doing my job if I wasn't honest with New Yorkers about the actual facts And those are the facts. Why do you think the Black Lives Matter movement is the focus of those kinds of responses from folks? Racism. You know, our original sin in this country is that of white supremacy. This country was founded on the backs of black Americans, enslaved people, with land stolen from indigenous Americans. And that legacy persists. And as a white American myself... I have to own up to that. I have to acknowledge that. Far too many white Americans see black protest as threatening without any evidence that it is actually threatening or actually violent. And that's a legacy of racism. So dozens of New Yorkers have been charged for their role in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We interviewed one of them who served three months in prison, and he's now even firmer in his beliefs that the 2020 election was stolen and that there's a deep state. How concerned should we be about more of that kind of political violence leading up to the next presidential election? U.S. elections are safe and they're secure, and it is incredibly important 
for our democracy that we all go out and vote. And I think that obviously threats of violence around the election undermine our democracy. They, they're designed specifically to undermine people's confidence in the vote. And the most important thing for all of us to do as Americans who care deeply about American values and American freedoms and American liberty is to go out and vote and to not be intimidated by threats of political violence. I am confident that in New York State, we have the resources and the plans and the coordination we need to make sure that our elections are safe, that our elections are safe from a cyber perspective, that our elections are safe from a physical perspective. Um, but, you know, obviously the fact that we even have to have this conversation in this country, in this day, is heartbreaking and is designed by people who would prefer autocratic and authoritarian government to suppress our vote. And I think New York won't let that happen. And uh, I'm confident that our elections will be safe this year. Knowing that there is online extremism activity in New York, you know, that far right flyers are going up um, in the North Country, that there are groups that are active and public in a way here. What message would you have to people that live in this area? You know, is there anything that folks in the North Country should be doing, should be looking out for? What I guess, what role does the public have to play in this moment? That's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked it. I think two things. I think the first thing is that we all have to realize that we are in this moment of increasing hate and extremism, and every single one of us has a role to play. Your role might be to challenge that hate at the dinner table or to challenge it out at the bar with your colleagues after work, right? Your role might be to say, hey, you know what, Uncle Joe, that's not a funny joke, right? Or, hey, you know what? No, actually, that's not a normal thing to say. But we all can play a role and simply challenging the speech, simply saying, yeah, I don't believe that. Now, I'm not, that's not cool with me, is an important way to reassert the norms in this country, to reassert that hate really has no place here. And then the second thing I want people to know is that you should not be a bystander to someone radicalizing in your own circle of loved ones. If you have a kid who is saying, you know, is, is online and is going down rabbit holes and then is saying stuff at the dinner table that you know you didn't teach him or you know you didn't teach her. It's almost always him, but you know that you didn't teach them. If you have a student in your class, if you have a cousin or a parent that you feel like has been radicalized over the last several years and you're worried about, there are ways to seek help. There are ways to get the tools that you need to intervene. You do not have to be a bystander watching family members radicalize, regardless of the ideology, right? It's not about ideology. It's about the fact that we live in a multiracial, pluralistic, democratic society that is worth fighting for. And fundamentalism of any type that leads to violence is a threat to that. And we don't have to be bystanders. We don't have to be bystanders in our communities. We don't have to be bystanders in our families. That was Jackie Bray, Commissioner of New York's Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, speaking to reporters Emily Russell and Zach Hirsch from North Country Public Radio for their podcast, If All Else Fails. They're investigating extremist groups and militia movements that are active in New York State in that podcast, which comes to us through our partnership with the New York Public News Network. You can listen to all episodes of the podcast, If All Else Fails, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll take a break. And when we come back, celebrating winter in Parksville. This is Radio Chatsko. When Sarah Jones was growing up, her parents didn't talk about adopting her from Korea. They just wanted her to be happy. They want to just instill love, like, from the moment you're adopted, which I think is a very common instinct. But certainly there's this silencing factor that plays out in international adoption. How to take care of our loved ones and ourselves. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Friday afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. 
You're listening to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Tomorrow at 10, Pillars of Parksville is celebrating all things winter with a range of activities, including a polar plunge. Valerie Manzi spoke to Samantha McManus, organizer of the event. Good morning, Samantha, and welcome to Radio Chatskill. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, and I'm very excited to talk to you today about what's coming up on Saturday, the 20th, um, mm-hmm. at Pillars of Parksville in Parksville, New York, and you're having quite um, a fabulous sounding winter celebration. Can you share with our listeners what they can expect? Yes, absolutely. So on Saturday, we are having a winter celebration to kick off the opening of our wellness center, Pillows of Parksville. We are going to have several free activities for attendees to participate in. Um, Our activities will be taking place inside now because it's going to be pretty cold out, so uh, we've moved them inside. Um, The scheduled events include a drum ceremony at 10 a.m., a community meditation, a bird of prey presentation at 11, and a thermal drone demonstration and a qigong lesson. And we'll also have some free hot chocolate and food will be available for donation. And the program runs from 10 to 4 p.m., am I correct? Yes, yes, correct, 10 to 4. And tell us a little bit about um, the beginnings of Pillars of Parksville. Sure. I'm a, I'm a licensed social worker with um, a background in mental health, working with children and families, and I've been rooted in Sullivan County for years now. Um, my husband's um, family has been here forever, and he grew up and went to school in Livingston Manor. And together, um, we started um, to renovate a property in Parksville in, during the lockdown in 2020. Um, I guess really it started um, with a vision to provide um, the community a space for physical, emotional, and social well-being. I guess a place to heal. Um, our journey to, you know, Pills of Parksville right now was kind of a shared commitment to healing um, that we felt and that our friends also felt was needed in the community. Um, And I'm so fortunate to know some incredible uh, practitioners and personal trainers uh, that have helped create and are going to be contributing to the services we provide at Pillars. And what are some of those services? Uh, So we're focused on incorporating the eight pillars of wellness. And so we'll have services... Uh, physical, social, emotional, spiritual, um, environmental, educational, occupational services. And at our center, we are, will have um, a, a fitness den that includes some fitness equipment. Um, we'll also have an Oxfit smart gym um, that offers like a personalized workout and fun interactive games where you could work out and also have fun while you're doing it. Uh, we'll also have an infrared sauna, a cold immersion tub, and a 3D body scanner for really accurate health measurements. Um, a part of our services will also include yoga, meditation, and personal training uh, with our um, with our teachers and our practitioners. You will be able to have either a private lesson a small group lesson, or be able to engage in some of our classes that we offer throughout um, throughout the month. That sounds quite a, a lot to be taking on. I'm very impressed with this. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and I'm a mom of three, so. <laughs> now, how long has this been actually open and functioning? So we are opening... This weekend, this oh, okay. is our so grand it's... opening. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've been renovating since 2018. Well, no, since 2020. Um, the idea started in 2018. Um, I had started another, um, um, really our parent uh, organization, Cats Come Out and Kids, uh, where I incorporated 3D prints 
and I made toys from biodegradable plastic for kids. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we're really joining um, technology with personal wellness um, all together at at the Pillars. (laughs) So do you still have Catskill Kids? Yes, I do. And we're incorporating that at our center as well. I'll have um, 3D printed Catskill Mountain Kids uh, um, uh, toys. And we also have the ability to, if someone, so if someone were to get a, a scan of themselves in our 3D body scanner, we can print that out with our 3D printers. And tell me a little bit about what materials are used for the um, making for the scans? of the, yes or for the three D prints. For sure, the prints. Um, we use uh, we use a P- PLA plastic, so it's a biodegradable plant based plastic, and um, that way it will degrade over time, and it's safe to handle, and it's safe for children to handle, especially. Interesting, because that, those 3D printers, when I first learned of them and, and saw them in action, they kind of alarmed me because of all the plastic. Yeah, and I I, I think it does alarm a lot of people, but um, there are ways to interact with plastic. I mean, plastic is, is here, and, you know, we need to find safe ways to use it to recycle it and to make it into into new new products for ourselves and eventually we would love to have a uh, a plastic um i guess a, a plastic recycling and um way to reuse them at our center uh well could you expand on that uh, so one of the programs that we wanted to incorporate, we eventually want to incorporate, um, is something called Precious Plastics, where we are able to take plastic or anyone is able to bring plastic and we can break it down and turn it into 3D filaments and then print it into something new. So that is one way that we would like to change how we perceive plastic because it's here and we kind of need to figure out a way to um, incorporate it into, into our everyday use and recyclable use, I guess. <laughs> yes, because we do hear that the recycle rate of uh, plastics is quite uh, abysmal. It's only like under 10% of plastics mm-hmm. get recycled. Yes, and it also it ties into our environment, wanting to um, tie into the environmental component of of wellness. You know, being able to showcase how we can recycle and use um, these products again. Well, tell us a little bit about what's going to happen on the 20th. This is also your opening, so the goal is to get folks to come and meet each other and to see your space in Parksville. Yes, it's a way for the community to come together and to, um, I guess, view our center. Our doors will officially open on the 22nd Monday for bookings for anyone who would like to come to either use our sauna, try a cold plunge. Um, oh, that's the other thing I forgot to mention is that we will be having a polar plunge available to anyone who is brave enough to uh, come and try that out on the day of, uh, on, on Saturday, on the day of our winter celebration. So, and, and that's indoors? Uh, that will happen outdoors. Oh, okay. Uh, in our in two of our ice barrels, so they will be on our porch. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. Well, this sounds like um, quite the winter event. And let me repeat, so uh, folks who are listening will know where and when. It's Pillars of Parksville. It's a winter celebration. 857 Parksville Road in Parksville, and that's January 20th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And thank you, Samantha, for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on air. You are welcome. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill. You can find this and previous episodes, plus all of our locally produced programming on our website, wjffradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. 
Thanks for listening and have a good weekend. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania, offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. On Point is next. It's Friday. Science Friday starts at 2. The weather forecast for the area today, snow at times accumulating an inch or two. Uh, total storm accumulation is about three inches today. Snow can make roads and sidewalks slippery, disrupting travel. So be aware, be cautious. Tomorrow, low clouds, breezy, a couple of flurries, really cold, only a high of 14. Tonight's low seven, so it's only going up to 14 tomorrow. Bundle up, not quite as harsh on Sunday afternoon. Partly sunny, breezy, high 21. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, live streaming at WJFFRadio.org. This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. Coming up next, On Point from WBOR Boston, it's 11 o'clock.